Amen. Let's take our Bibles, please. Turn to Mark chapter 9 this morning. Mark chapter 9. And I've been fussing with this passage for several weeks now on the transfiguration. And I just could not get a piece about the message I had. So I started over this week. And I, I have something that I feel like the Lord would have me share with you this morning. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. We'll look at the transfiguration. I pray and hope that you had a great week. And uh, we, had a, we had a great week. We had Emily and our grandson Theo here with us for the week. And uh, let me tell you, the next time he comes to visit, I will be offering him out as Theo's home decorating service. And uh, I'm, I thought teenagers were slobs. That guy can turn up a house upside down in about five minutes. But so much fun, and it was worth every, every toy we had to pick up or everything he destroyed or broke. But it was a lot of fun. And so uh, praise the Lord for grandkids. Uh, Mark chapter 9 this morning. I want to wish Pastor and Mrs. McPherson a happy 45th anniversary yesterday, 45 years. And, and I make a big deal about those big numbers in church because we don't see that in our society anymore, long marriages. But in our church, we ought to. And I praise the Lord for godly examples of long marriages. And so 45 years, Mom and Frank hit 10 years this week on Thursday. Is that right? I don't even, are they here? They're still honeymooning somewhere. There they are. Ten years this past Thursday, and today is Josh's 17th birthday. I, I, he's in here somewhere. Josh Nicholmore that lives with us, 17 years today. So if you see these folks, congratulate them. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias, Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them and a voice that came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly when they had looked round about, they saw no, many, no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. As they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another, what the rising from the dead should mean. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. And as we look at this moment in history that we believe 100% to be historical fact, Lord, it is almost mind-bending to think that Moses and Elijah would come back from the dead to meet with the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. We know that in heaven they are spirit. We know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and it is nothing for God, nothing shall be impossible with God to bring these two men back. But for Peter, James, and John, looking upon them, it, it, the Bible says they were sore afraid. Lord, I feel like I would count myself in that number. Lord, they were seeing things that no man had ever seen before. And God had opened up the heavens and poured out a special blessing upon them. And I pray, Lord, that today, because of the completed word of God, because we have the Holy Spirit of God within our hearts, you would also give us an insight. Not a new revelation, for there is none. But Lord, would you just help us to understand the revelation you've already given. 
Lord, so desperately we need the Spirit of God to help us with that. So teach us and guide us and direct us. I surrender to you and ask for your filling. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as I consider the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible for me, at least to wrap my head around. I think the facts are very plain. We can see what is happening verse by verse, and we can understand just from the language of Scripture very plainly and simply what is going on. So that is not the issue. The issue for me is why? Why did the Lord Jesus Christ take these men aside, these these three that were of his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and why would he take them apart into a mountain, and why were they given a glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory, and why did all this happen? Well, I believe that everything we find in the Word of God is for our admonition, it is for our exhortation, it is to help us to grow spiritually and to to glean from it that we might learn and and be more Christ-like in the end. And so I want to give you some things this morning that, that the Lord just kind of laid upon my heart. And, and I, think, uh, I think I have a sense of it in some way that I'd like to share with you this morning. I'm going to outline it this way. First of all, I want you to see the encounter. The encounter. As we look in verse 2, the Bible says, And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. The Bible doesn't say much about the transfiguration just in verse 2. It just simply says he was transfigured before them. Verse 3 will give us a little bit more detail, but let us just direct our attention to verse 2 for a moment. As the Bible says, he took Peter, James, and John apart into a mountain alone. You know, I, I want to I say this and focus on this point for a moment before we get into the details of the transfiguration itself. I, I think it is, is good for us to notice that when God gives a special revelation to Peter, James, and John, that he, 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 that, that he didn't always give that to everybody. There was something about those three men that God set them apart and he, he gave them a special revelation. We see in the scriptures different times when the Lord prayed that it was Peter, James, and John that went further with him. And though they fell asleep, they got to hear partially the prayers of Christ in that high priestly prayer in the garden. There was other times we find that Peter, James, and John were with the Lord Jesus Christ receiving special teaching from the Lord. And in this case, it is no different. For he spoke to them and said, do not speak of anything until I be risen from the dead. And they said, what does that mean? The Lord gave them a special revelation. But I think if we're going to be honest this morning, that we see throughout Scripture that any time the Lord imparts his truth, it's always when he's taken somebody aside. I just want you to consider that with me this morning, if you will. Think about that time that, that the Lord spoke to Moses. The Bible says he went up into the mountain and into the tabernacle and he spoke face to face with God as God was speaking with a friend. That was the testimony of Moses. As a matter of fact, we are reminded in the scriptures that God said to Moses several times, go back down the mountain for no man shall break through and see my glory. And you warn them with with the threat of penalty and punishment and, and put bounds around the mountain. I don't want anybody even to look through and gaze upon me. Moses, this insight that I'm about to give you is just for you. It was a very private time. We see in the scripture that it was only Samuel that heard the voice of the Lord that night. Even the prophet Eli was kept in silence. 
Until Samuel finally replied, speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. And God poured out the will of God for Israel upon a young boy. God inspired Daniel with visions. And God chose Mary and Joseph and gave them insight through angelic visions. And God met with Paul on the road to Damascus. And John was given revelation of things to come on the Isle of Patmos. He spoke specifically to these people. And the point I'd like to make this morning, and I think this would help us devotionally, is that when we get alone with God, that's when God really speaks to our hearts. We can come to a service like this and through great, even, and I'll just be honest, there's been times where I've been in those services where you feel like there's a manipulation taking place and a slick speaker can get an altar full of people because of the, the hysteria almost of emotion as it takes over a crowd. But it's in those times that we get alone with God that we can make sincere decisions for Christ. And don't get me wrong, the preaching of the word of God is important and we must stand on the word of God in this evil and wicked day that we live in. And truth must not extinguish from our church. We must always stand upon it and preach it boldly. And friends, I'm going to encourage you this morning that even in this place, in a crowd of people, God can speak to you individually. His Holy Spirit is stirring within your heart. And though he is ever present, he is individually present as he indwells us and we surrender to him and he fills us today. And he has something for you from the word of God today. And so we see that he took Peter, James, and John aside and gave them a special insight. And notice the encounter today. Number one, they were invited by Jesus. I think that's important. The Bible says in six, after six days, Jesus talketh, taketh with him Peter, James, and John. It, it was not Peter, James, and John jumping on a bandwagon. It says he took them. They were invited into the very presence of God by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's important again that we note this, that man may only approach God on God's terms. We only have the right to go boldly in the throne of grace because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Because the blood that was shed to pay the price for our sins. Not every sinner can go into the presence of God. But those that are washed and cleansed and forgiven by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ have that wonderful privilege of stepping into his throne room. Do we take advantage of it? I look back all the way to the book of Genesis and I see Cain and Abel. I see that Abel pleased God with his sacrifice but Cain was disappointing, his, his gift to the Lord was disappointing because he took of the first fruits of the earth rather than a blood sacrifice. And God was teaching right from day one that if we are going to come into the presence of God, if we are going to worship him properly, if we are going to seek his face and pray, we must come through the blood. That's the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. The separation of man and God can only be reconciled by sacrifice. And it's true all the way back to Eden. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, the Bible says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or the putting away of sins. Romans chapter 5, and while you're there, turn to Colossians chapter 1, and I will read for you Romans chapter 5. Colossians uh, Romans 5.10 says this, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Let me read that again as you're looking up Colossians 1. I, I, I don't want you to miss what it says. For if when we were enemies, 
That's what we were. Dead in our sins. We were outside the covenants of God. For we were dead in our sins when we were enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You cannot come to God unless you come through Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 22. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which he have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, and made an enemy. I'm sorry, uh, and made a minister. Jump back to verse 21. I started in the wrong verse. Read it with me. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. How? In the body of his flesh through death. To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given us to the ministry of reconciliation. Peter, James, and John were given a special insight. They were allowed to see something that day, but only because of Jesus. Don't make a mistake this morning, friends, that we think today, how, how, many, how often do we see people just approaching Christ on their own terms, approaching the throne of God, or worshiping the Lord any way they see fit? The Bible is very plain. We must all come through the blood. I want you to notice, first of all, the invitation, but secondly, we see the isolation. In verse 2 of chapter 9 in the book of Mark, it says, and after six days, Jesus taketh with him, Peter and James and John, and look where he took them. And he leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. Apart by themselves. I want to reiterate this morning that when we receive something from the Lord and his word, there are those people that take the time to allow communion between him and them. Can I suggest to you this morning coming to church is not enough for your spiritual walk? Simply being spoon-fed things in a Sunday school class or taking a discipleship. Listen, they're all good things and they're all helpful things. The Bible says by the foolishness of preaching that we need that. And Paul alludes to it later that preaching would continue. So he says that, that in the end times they would heap to themselves preachers having itching ears. So he's, he's pointing at a time where there will always be preaching. It might always be good, but there will always be preaching. Well, friends, it's not enough. By the way, I, I, I've made this point before, and, and it's something that rings in my mind. I, I can't find in the scriptures where it talks about or we are commanded to simply read the Bible. We are commanded to meditate therein, day and night. We are commanded to study to show thyself approved. Sometimes we read the Bible through because we have a schedule we're trying to get through in a year and we don't glean anything from it or, or, or learn very much. And let me encourage you to take the time to study the word and to, to, to meditate upon the word. And, and let me encourage you this, just isolate yourself that you might know more of God. Pastor Unger, Bethel Baptist Church in London, has retired just a few years ago and his grandson, James McDonald, is the pastor there of Bethel Baptist Church. He told me this, he, he had James come on staff for a few years before he would turn the church over to him, a young man that had 
gone to Bible college and felt called to ministry. And Brother Unger was just sharing with me. And he said, he says, you know, I, I get him up. I want to get him experience preaching and, and train him a little bit. And, and, and so he, he'd get up and he'd preach. And I, I just went, oh, I hope Brother McDonald doesn't watch this. But he says, here's what I told him. I said, young man, he says, here's what I want you to do. For, here's your duties for the next month. Come to the office every day and lock yourself in the office with the word of God. I don't want you to do anything else. I don't want you to go visiting. I don't want you to work in the print ministry. I don't want you doing anything else but lock yourself in an office for a month. And you read your Bible and you pray and you seek God. He says, I had him preach the first Sunday after that. And he says, you wouldn't believe the power of God upon that message. We need to isolate ourselves. When God was going to pour out into these men, he says, let's come apart by ourselves. Let's be isolated. Let's separate. If we think about times in the word of God where God did similar things, God took Elijah to a cave in Mount Horeb. He showed him the fire and the wind and the earthquake and the still small voice. Jonah was taken to the depths of the sea where God revived his heart. David had his cave at Adullam where he wrote several psalms. Daniel prayed alone three times daily. John the Baptist was alone in the wilderness. Paul took three years alone with God. And John was exiled to Patmos. What do they all have in common? They got alone with God. I would encourage you to do the same in Bible study and in prayer. Brother Cody actually used this verse that I have in my notes this morning for our devotion yesterday. Psalm 91.1 says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Do you know God's secret place? So we see the encounter. But I want to say, secondly, I want you to see the event. This is not an event that I'm trying to sensationalize in any sense, like a secular concert or something, but I just use the word to help us remember the encounter, the event, and so on. Notice what it says in the second part of verse 2. He was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. A fuller was one who bleached fabric. I heard a preacher this week say, I, I, I listened to a couple messages on this topic. I was curious uh, what others, how they interpreted or saw it. And somebody said, that, uh, that John, or Mark that is writing this passage, must have had a bad experience at the dry cleaners one day. Because he says, there's nobody on earth could get this clothes this white. He says, there's a fuller, and no fuller on earth could white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Notice the event. He was transfigured before them. I see first a revelation what was the purpose of this transfiguration? It was to see Jesus in his glory. Think with me this morning for a moment. If we look back just a few verses, we will find that the disciples have returned from a missionary journey and they meet up with Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, who do people say that I am? And some say, well, we, we've cast out demons according to thy name and we've, we've performed all kinds of miracles and we've healed people. And some say you're John the Baptist reincarnated. Some say you're Elias. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus made a statement there. He said, 
Flesh and blood have not revealed this unto you. This has come from the Spirit. This has come from God. In other words, Peter was speaking in faith. But now his faith was about to be made sight. The Lord Jesus Christ would reconfirm what Peter had already confessed by showing him his glory that he really was the Son of God. Hey, listen, isn't that, isn't that what we sing about so often? We believe that we shall behold him and we shall see him face to face, but we love singing about the idea that on that day, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. Face to face with Christ my Savior. One day we hope that our faith will become sight. And that's what's about to happen for Peter. He will see Jesus in his glory. So we see a revelation, but I want you to notice a reason. What is the reason for this transfiguration? So that Jesus in his humanity might step into the very presence of God. Now, some of you might argue this point. Whether or not Jesus as the God-man could see God or not. That's, but that's irrelevant. That's not the point we're making here. Jesus didn't necessarily do it for himself. He did it for the benefit of the disciples. See, way back in Exodus, Moses asked if he could see God. He said, let me see your glory. And God said, well, he said, I'm going to put you in this rock over here. There's a little cleft. He said, I'm going to put my hand over your face. And he says, when I pass by, I'll allow you only to see my back parts. He says, you can't look upon me. In Exodus chapter 33, God would say, thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. The Lord Jesus Christ is telling his disciples that he will die. Right after Peter's confession, the Lord Jesus Christ began to teach them, and we're only six months from the death of Christ, that he would be betrayed in the hands of sinners. He'd go to Jerusalem, and he would die, and that's when Peter said, not so, Lord. And Jesus uttered those famous words, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savest not the things that be of God. But now he's got a special mission for Peter, and so he's going to show him his glory, but he's also going to teach him something, that no flesh can step into the presence of God unless you have a glorified body. And so the Lord Jesus Christ was transfigured. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50, he says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. I don't mean to say this morning that Jesus was corrupted in the sense of sin, but his body was corruptible in the sense that it could die. It did die on the cross of Calvary. But in this moment, Jesus was transfigured. He put on incorruption, and he stepped into the very presence of God. Why were Peter, James, and John there? That they might also know that though we can spiritually go into the presence of Christ today, and we can go boldly to the throne of God because of what Christ has done for us, one day... This corruption shall put on incorruption. And one day we'll step into the very presence of the Almighty. And that would be wonderful. How many of you are tired of these old bodies? You ought to be. I look around and see some of them. <laughs> tired of the hurt and the pain and the, all the rest that comes with aging in life. You see these little kids running around thinking they don't have a care in the world. It's not long. And we start feeling it. But one day that will all be gone, and we will be like Jesus, for we shall see him as he is.
So there's a reason. But we also see a restraint. Notice in the scriptures that Peter, James, and John saw Jesus, Elijah, and Moses, but they did not know that God was there. They did not know. They could not see him and live. They were still in their physical bodies, and so when they, Peter cries out, he says, the Lord, let me, let me make a tabernacle or a booth, and he, he says, let me erect it for you and for Elijah and for Moses, but he doesn't say anything about God because he could not see him or know he was there. You see, we still must come through Jesus while we are in these physical bodies. And the Lord is going to do something to reveal himself to him. That's incredible. Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I've quoted some of these verses, but let's read a few of them this morning. And I understand that we're more in a Bible study this morning than, a, than a kind of a preaching decision type message. But I want you to see these things are so helpful to us as children of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verse 50, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. One day this corruption shall put on incorruption, and just like Jesus, we'll step into the very presence of God. I have a theory, and it has nothing to do with the message more, but I have this theory that if all the soldiers of Rome had charged up that mountain to take Jesus in his transfigured body, they could have never killed him. Because he was transfigured in a glorified body, standing in the presence of his Father. It was impossible. I want you to notice this. Turn, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just going forward a couple pages. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 1. For we know... Paul is gleaning some things from both the revelation Christ is giving him from the Gospels and the examples of the life of Christ. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we should not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who hath given unto us the earnest or the down payment of his spirit. What is he saying? One day we'll be changed. Apostle Paul also wrote to the church of Philippi when he said this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The resurrection is that moment we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We also see it in 1 Corinthians 15 that we've already read that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. And then and only then can we stand in the very presence of God Almighty. 
What a wonderful thing that Christ has wrought in us to make us fit and prepared for heaven. I want you to notice thirdly in this passage, the error. The error, look at verse 5. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. Isn't it funny that every time somebody puts their foot in their mouth, it's Peter, isn't it? Peter just has to speak. Maybe you're like that. Sometimes I'm like that, that's for sure. Peter has to speak. But in his error this morning, we see, first of all, an acknowledgement. It is good for us to be here. Of course it is. Christ is teaching you something. Christ has come to that place that he might be ministered to by, the Lord, by his Father God. We also see that Moses and Elijah are there representing the law and the prophets. And we'll see more about that in just a moment. And Peter gets so excited, he says, let's, let's put up some booths, three of them, and understand that the time in Israel's history, they were in the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And Peter, drawing from his life and from his history, every year for a week, they would set up booths, and it was to recognize they'd sleep in these booths for a week, little tents that were made of sticks and, and gravel and dirt, and they would build them up in a very crude fashion like you would if you were camping without a tent. Some sort of, uh, of, of shelter made of boughs and branches. They would dwell in them for a week to remind them of how God provided for them in the wilderness. How that even without a roof over their head, God always took care of them. It was called the Feast of the Tabernacles. And Jesus, the Bible says that as they went into those tabernacles, that God or the pre-incarnate Christ would meet with them. It was a time of separation and a time of spiritual growth and a time where they would do what they're doing on this day. They would gather themselves isolated with God and pray and seek his face. And now Peter says, yeah, I have a good idea. Let's do that up here on this mountain. Let's get alone with God. And, and, and no doubt he would build, build one for Peter and James and John, but let's build one for Elias and let's build one for Moses. Let them stay a little bit longer and let us worship God together. It is good for us to be here. That's the background of what he said. But he was also recognizing Moses and Elijah that were about to pass away. So we see, first of all, the acknowledgement, but we also see the ask or the question. Uh, the ask just alliterates better for me. Peter would meet with God, and he asked that the others could as well. But I want you to direct your attention to the last thing this morning, the exhortation. And here's where we need to get something from God today. Verse 7. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. No cloud was necessary prior to this because Jesus had been transfigured and Moses and Elijah were in their spiritual bodies already. Their physical bodies had been lying in a grave for centuries. But now they were in the presence of God and when he appeared to mortal flesh, Peter, James, and John, he had to hide himself in a cloud so that they would not be destroyed by his glory. Notice, first of all, his instruction. 
This is my beloved son. Hear him. Peter got excited about Moses and Elijah. The Bible says they were sore afraid. You would be too, so let's cut them some slack. Here were these two men that somehow they recognized who they were. They didn't have photo albums. They didn't have any way of calling back in their memory what these men looked like. They had never heard their voices audibly to identify them. Somehow God must have put upon their heart that this is, in fact, Moses and Elijah. And Peter cries out, let us gather together and we will worship together. And Jesus, or God the Father, I should say, comes and says, wait a minute, you're missing the point. This is my son. This is my son. You hear him. For centuries they had heard the law. By the way, the law is still good. The law is still good. The law teaches us that we're sinners. There are two types of law. I, I, I try to put it this way. There are two types of law. There's civic law and there's ceremonial law. The civic law remains today. Thou shalt not kill is still in the Bible. When the Bible says that you should not hurt a, a woman with a, a child in her womb, that is still in the Bible. We, we don't believe in abortion around here. When the Bible says that God created them male and female, we still believe that. And when a man should leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, we still believe that around here. We believe that everything else is a perversion of God's truth. We believe that. And that's what we preach and teach. But that's civic law, so it has never changed. And the fact that we cannot follow it perfectly means we're sinners. That we have failed. But there's also ceremonial law in the Bible. And the ceremonial law has all been replaced by Jesus Christ who fulfilled it perfectly. Every feast you read about and every sacrifice that was made was fulfilled in one fell swoop on a hill called Mount Calvary where Jesus Christ, the perfect and spotless Lamb of God, shed his blood for the sins of the whole world. And so God says to Peter on that mountain, I, I know you, you want to hear more from Moses and I know you want to hear more from the prophet Elijah, but friend, here's my son Jesus who's fulfilled both the law and the prophets. Hear him and trust in Jesus. We see not only his instruction, we see his illustration. Look at verse eight. And suddenly when they had looked round about them, they saw no man anymore, save Jesus only. The others are gone. The Lord Jesus Christ is standing alone in the presence of Peter, James, and John. And God has masterfully instructed them and illustrated to him exactly what he just meant when he said, hear him. Moses and Elijah are gone. The law and the prophets that age is over. Now we turn to Jesus. And we trust only in him. Friends, do you know him today? Maybe this will help you understand 2 Corinthians 5, 17 a little better. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Listen to this. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You see, how does that happen? 
Do you remember in Revelation where the new Jerusalem's coming down and the Lord Jesus Christ says, behold, I make all things new. He is the new and living way. It is only through Jesus a man can be born again. Listen, friend, if you don't know Christ today, we get a glimpse this morning, not only of Peter's confession, but him witnessing that Jesus Christ is the very Son of God. That God in the flesh for a moment was transfigured. That he might step into the presence of God to show us that we too can be changed. But all of it comes through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father but by him. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment this morning. Let me ask you, friend, do you know Christ as your Savior? <laughs> Difficult passage for me, I'm going to be honest, and just trying to preach faithfully through Mark and the stories of that great book of the Bible, the Gospels. But I think there's something we can learn. We sang this morning, two or three of our hymns included those phrases, one day we'll stand with him face to face, we'll see him face to face, we'll be in his presence. Let me ask you, will you? Don't, don't fall for the world's refrain today that we are all children of God. We were all created in his image, but we damage that image when we sinned. If we were truly the children of God, why does the Bible constantly say that we should be conformed to the image of Christ? That we should become a new creature in Christ? That we should put off the old and put on the new? Why is the Bible constantly, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I believe verse 19, it says that right now we behold uh, through a veil darkly, but one day as if looking into a glass, we will see him and we will be changed into his image. Why is the Bible constantly telling us we need to change? Because of our sin. Because we failed him. Because we're lost. And the only way we'll ever see God is to experience 1 Corinthians 15 when this corruption puts on incorruption. When we are changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. When we put on a spiritual body. A body that is sown into the ground in dishonor and raised in honor. A body that is sown in corruption and raised in incorruption. A body that is sown a fleshly carnal body and raised a spiritual body. For even Jesus demonstrating to us as Christ in the flesh, he must be transfigured to go into the presence of God. You can have that today, but you must come through Jesus. Let's stand to our feet with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Is there one today say, Preacher, I'm not sure I'm saved. I'm lost. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. We've all sinned, come short of the glory of God. And that the only remedy of that sin is Jesus Christ, who was the perfect Lamb of God who paid the price for my sins. Understand, again, I believe the only reason that Jesus 
could even be transfigured to stand in the presence of God is because he was absolutely sinless and perfect. Nobody else could do it. But Jesus was perfect and sinless. God in the flesh. But one day, one day, the trumpet will sound and our bodies will be resurrected to stand before the great white throne judgment and you'll either be forever in the presence of God or the presence of Satan and his demons in hell. Do you know him today? Are you a child of God? Are you saved? Does one say, preacher, pray for me? I'm not sure I'm saved. Is there one? Living the way we live without Christ. You say, what have I got to lose? Your eternal soul. Well, God would speak to our hearts and help us.